And I'm going to ask Tim if he would come forward and read our scripture reading for this evening. That is John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. All right, uh, John 16, verses 4 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. God, again, we thank you for uh, your word. God, we thank you particularly on this Pentecost Sunday when uh, throughout the history of your people, of the Jewish people, um, and continuing on to the church age where we give thanks um, for uh, the, the, the coming of your word into the world. Um, God, we... Um, thank you for the fact that we have this objective source that we can turn to, God, that you speak to us through your word, that as we read it, we know we have a true uh, and living um, picture of who you are, of your character, um, of your goodness, of your graciousness to your people, of your glory. God, as we open your word, we see um, the meaning for which you have created all things, the purpose um, that you have determined for all things, and that is the glorification of your son. Um, that is, he has come to save us from our sins, to welcome us into his uh, kingdom and into your family. God, to to set up the, the, the way that we will live in eternity with you. Um, God, we thank you that we open your word and we see those things played out for us. God, we thank you that we learn how we can be saved by your word. We learn how uh, that our sins have separated us from you. And yet because of who Jesus is, because of his life, death, and resurrection, because of his sacrifice, that we can be made right with you um, by faith, according to your grace shed out for us. Um, God, we thank you that your word teaches us how to live uh, in this wicked age. Um, that you have called us to be um, separate, and yet that we would be in the world, but not of it. God, that we would uh, be as as sheep in the midst of wolves. Um, God, that we would carry the truth with us, and that we would be as uh, beggars 
telling other beggars where to find bread, um, inviting them to, to flee the coming judgment and to trust in Jesus Christ. God, all these things, your word shows us and teaches us. It shows us who we are and who we will be. It shows us the way the world is and the way it will one day be. Father, we thank you for all of this. We ask as we open your word that you would reveal yourself to us, particularly that you would reveal truth about uh, your Holy Spirit, that we would know him more truly and deeply because of the things that we uh, study here today. God, as we thank you for your word, we thank you for the fact that your word uh, is revealed to us and understood uh, through your church as well. As the spirit works amongst your people, um, we understand your word rightly. And so we thank you for um, our brother and sister congregations of Blount County. We ask that you would bless them, that you would bless their ministries, that the gospel would go forth from those embassies of Christ and that they would spread the good news of Jesus Christ into the communities, among the families, among the, the, the places of uh, business um, and, and other community entities that they represent, and that you would bless them, that people would hear the gospel, that they would turn from sin, that they would repent and, and, and come to Christ. God, that even in our own time, we would see a great moving of your spirit and that uh, you would draw people to yourself. God, help us to be agents of that. Um, but God, we pray that your spirit would go before us as we are going to talk about in John's gospel tonight. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we um, what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks, so we finished up our series on Luke last week. Um, we are going to for, uh, so this is Pentecost Sunday. Um, next week, next Sunday in, in sort of the church calendar is called Trinity Sunday. And so it's the, it's the day that in the history of the church, we have traditionally talked specifically about the Trinity. Obviously, in lots of ways, we talk about the Trinity every Sunday, but, but we sort of zoom in on, on things about the Trinity. And then for the American church, Father's Day comes two weeks after that. And so for the last few years, we've sort of used this month to be a Trinitarian month. So we talk about the spirit a lot of times on Pentecost. And we talk about uh, some other person of the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. As we lead into Father's Day, we have this opportunity to kind of focus on the idea of fatherhood and the fatherhood of God. And so we're going to do the same thing this year. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on a particular section of scripture uh, called the Upper Room Discourse. So this is in... Uh, the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, 16 in there. And so this is the teaching that that Christ gave to his disciples after the Lord's Supper, but before they departed to, to go to Gethsemane. And so there's a lot of uh, cool stuff in there. It's sort of this long, extended teaching or preaching section that we have in, in John's Gospel. And so we're going to sort of zoom in on that as we talk about this week, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Next week, um, the ministry of Jesus Christ, and then the next week, the ministry of the Father. So today, as we talk about this idea um, of the of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, um, so so what I want to maybe zoom in on as we come to this is the, the fact that usually when we talk about the Holy Spirit, or oftentimes, at least in our circles, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we tend towards extremes. So there is a, on one side, there is this typical, particularly among Baptist and Reformed churches, of almost ignoring the Holy Spirit. Like, we don't even treat the Holy Spirit like it's anything. We don't talk about it much. 
Uh, we don't talk about him much. We just sort of, uh, we, we all believe that the Holy Spirit is, is real. And then we just don't talk about him much. But then there's the other side of that where it seems like people are, when they do talk about him, all they talk about is the more dramatic works of the Holy Spirit. And so we oftentimes our discussions about the Holy Spirit um, tend to circle around what we call the gifts of the Holy Spirit or what are theologically referred to as the charismata, right? The, these, these um, specific gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to, to the church. Now, there's certainly discussion to be had there. The Bible talks about those things, and so it's right and appropriate for us to talk about them. There are certainly disagreements on the nature and extent of whether those gifts continue in the same way. And you've probably been a part of those conversations before. But here's what I want to address today, is there's a more central work of the Spirit that is addressed in other places in Scripture, much more central than, than those more dramatic gifts and particularly here in John 16. So again, we're in the middle of this section called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and this is this, this teaching that Jesus specifically imparts to the disciples um, at the Last Supper. And he begins in this section with some things that we've actually heard very recently because we got to, it's only been a few weeks since we talked about this same section in the Gospel of Luke, okay? And so in verse four, he says, I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we talked about this, a similar section in Luke just a few weeks ago, right? Um, the incredible realization that the Bible says this is we are better off that Jesus has ascended. We are better off as followers of, of Jesus, that Jesus is no longer here physically, that he's ascended to the father, because if he did not ascend to the father, then the Holy Spirit could not descend and, and fill his church. All right. So we talked about that. We won't take the time to rehash all that now. Um, but it's a, um, it's an incredible truth that we touched on. But here's the deal. Um, we also were told specifically in this passage in John 16, what the spirit will do when he comes. What is the spirit going to do when he comes? Go to verse eight. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. So when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? A blatant observation that we make in this passage is the Spirit convicts the world. Now, what do we mean by convicting? Okay, When you convict something or someone or the word conviction, what does that mean? Okay, well, the, it is the act of convincing someone. We're not talking about in a legal sense in which you are convicted of a crime, but when a person is convicted in their in their heart or in their conscience, it's an act of convincing that person, of compelling one to admit what is true. All right? So that includes from both sides of the equation, both convincing them of error and falsehood of understanding at first, 
And then along with that, proving and convincing them of the truth and rightness of the other side, right? And so that is sort of the dual work of what it means for us to be convicted of something. And we're told here, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. There is something, I think, incredibly freeing and empowering about that simple truth right there. That it is the job of the Spirit to convict the world, not the job of me or you or any other individual Christian or even, in a sense, God's church in general. It's not our job to convict. In fact, we can't convict anybody. It is the Spirit's job to convict. It is the Spirit's job to convince. Now, certainly, the Spirit may use us in that endeavor. It may use us and our witness. It may use us in discussions we have with other people to, to uh, be the means by which people are convicted or convinced. But it is the Spirit who is actually doing the work. And I don't, again, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly freeing. Uh, that I can speak freely with people and trust that the spirit is going to move how the spirit is going to move. All I have to do is, is, is be honest with people and I'll let God do the work. Now, as we look at this, he specifically says there's three specific ways in which the spirit convicts the world. And they're explained in verses nine, 10 and 11. Conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness and conviction of judgment. Now, here's the interesting thing. What do those three things mean? Because if he just said those three words, if he said the Spirit's going to come and convict people of sin, convict people of righteousness, and convict people of judgment, we might go in all kinds of different ways. But I think what he does in this passage is he shows us, he zooms it in by the little passage after each of those things in the description. So notice, after each, he clarifies the particular way that he, what he means by that kind of conviction. So, for example, verse 9, he says, the Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin. And then what does it say after that? Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. All right? The Spirit convicts concerning sin because they do not believe in me. All right? So we can define sin in various ways. And they would all be biblical ways of defining it. So one way that we can talk about sin rightly is talk about it as an issue of false worship or idolatry. So in a sense, all sin that we commit is in essence a form of idolatry because we are placing something ahead of our proper uh, obedience to God, whether that is money or pleasure or power or literally anything, even a physical other God or something like that, right? So we could talk about sin in terms of false worship. We could rightly also talk about sin in terms of breaking a commandment. Because the reality is, is God has decreed how we should live, and we have broken those decrees. Things like the Ten Commandments, right, expressed very, very upfront and, and blatantly to us. And so sin can be talked about as breaking of a commandment that God has given us. Another way that we can talk about sin is that it is in terms of breaking a relationship. That we have. So to love God, we find out actually in John chapter 15, is to obey him. If you love God, you will obey him. And sin is the breaking of that loving fellowship that we experience with God, right? So it's not just about a rule. It's not just about worship. There's actually a relationship that we 
um, hurt when we sin. Those are all right ways to talk about sin. And we could probably, if somebody were to say, the Spirit is going to convict you of sin, then we might say any one of those things. But I think there's a specific focus, and we know that because of the, the little phrase afterwards. In this case, sin is expressed in a particular way, and it is in this. Sin is rejecting Jesus. That's what sin is. In our context, sin is rejecting Jesus. Sin is expressed in an unwillingness to believe on Jesus Christ. To believe on Jesus is to act in accord with what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. The, the, the New Testament even uses the language that we are to obey the gospel. All right. Sometimes we talk about receiving the good news, receiving the gospel. But there are other places in the New Testament where it talks about obeying the gospel. That we have to believe and to not believe is the central sin. To reject him, to reject Jesus is to break the command, is to break the relationship, is to break the worship. And so the spirit convicts the heart of the lost what is truly necessary. That's what the spirit does. The Spirit shows the lost that to be in right relationship with Jesus is what is at the center of everything. Not just professing a nominal faith in God, not just cleaning up your life, not just being a spiritual person. What have you done with Jesus? If you have trusted in Jesus, then you're right. If you have not trusted in Jesus, then no matter what you've done, you are in sin. So that's part of what the Spirit does. The Spirit shows us that the central issue of all of our lives is to be right with Jesus, period. Nothing else matters in light of that. That's the first thing. But he doesn't just convict us of sin. He also convicts us of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, he gives us this interesting phrase that almost, I don't know about you, but the first time I read it, I went, that, that doesn't really have anything to do with the, the being convinced of righteousness or concerning righteousness. Verse 10, he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So what is that about? How does that, how does that phrase elaborate on what it means to be convicted or convinced of righteousness? We might think that being convicted of righteousness um, was being about convicted, being convicted of a moral life or a religious life, or a spiritual life. But again, I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. In this case, being convicted of righteousness is again about Jesus. We are convicted of Jesus' righteousness. And that is expressed in the fact, the vindicating truth that Jesus has been resurrected, that Jesus is ascending and going away. Why is Jesus worthy to do that? Why is Jesus worthy to ascend, to go to sit at the right hand of the Father? Why is he, he, he worthy to do that? The reason is, is because he is righteous. Because he is the sinless one. Because he is the one who has been fully and completely obedient to his Father in every way. And so the conviction of the Spirit does not only convince the world that it is sinful because it doesn't believe in Jesus. It also convinces the world that Jesus is righteous. And that his ascension to the Father is part of that righteousness and evidence of that righteousness. I was thinking about, you, you probably heard the term, it's like a sociological term, people we call halfbacks here in the South. 
Um, I don't know if you know what a halfback is. So halfback is Yankees uh, that live up north, and then they move to Florida, you know, to retire or whatever. But then what happens is they get to Florida and they realize Gulf Coast living is very difficult because of the three H's, which are heat, humidity, and hurricanes, right? And so then they go, I don't want to live on the Gulf Coast. I want to go halfway back. And so they move to places like East Tennessee, uh, or North Carolina, or someplace like that, right? So we have this term, and again, you may not be familiar with that, halfbacks. Well, they're spiritual halfbacks. There are people who make it sort of halfway in this whole equation. They are people who recognize sin, walk away from it, but they never turn to Jesus and believe on him. They never turn to Jesus and acknowledge his righteousness. They clean up some of their excesses, some of the unhealthy and destructive practices, and we can mistakenly look on at those people's lives sometimes and go, man, good for you. And I think the Holy Spirit's convicting that person because they've stopped doing the sinful things that, that they were doing before that were destructive and hurtful and whatever. The Spirit is convicting them. But here's the truth. If they are not also turned to Jesus Christ, then that conviction is probably not from the Holy Spirit. It's just them looking at the way their lives are going and decided they need to make better decisions. Because the reality is, is the conviction of the Holy Spirit is always connected to Jesus. Who we are supposed to be in Jesus, knowing Jesus, who Jesus is. Now again, man, I hope people make those decisions. I hope people clean up their lives all the time, right? If you've got a bunch of destructive problems that are going to hurt you and those around you, I hope you clean those up. We can say that's socially a good thing. But it's not the same thing as the Spirit convicting someone. Because when the Spirit convicts, it turns people to Jesus. And lastly, we have a conviction to judgment. Concerning judgment, verse 11 says, because the ruler of this world is judged. So what is that about? Well, we think we, we know who the ruler of this world is, and that is Satan. Satan is the one who had been given free reign over our world. And this is saying that what part of what the Spirit does is it convicts and convinces us of the judgment that has come because the ruler of this world has been judged. So here's the interesting thing. Um, when you got baptized, baptism looks a certain way in the Baptist church. Okay, I think probably the case is if you got baptized in the Baptist church or many broadly evangelical kind of churches, um, you probably went down into the water or whatever the case may be, and, and they said something like this. Who do you profess as Lord and Savior? And you said, Jesus Christ. And they said, cool, let's pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the donkey, and you come up. Okay? Um, here's something interesting, though. Uh, when you look at historical baptismal vows, when you look at what the pastor says to the initiate, right, the person who is about to be baptized, there's this big chunk of stuff that we leave off compared to older traditions. So, for example, here's how uh, the Anglican um, baptismal uh, uh, vows begin. There's multiple questions. The first question is this. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world, which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? 
Okay, that's where it begins. Okay, but this is why that's significant. This is why that's important. Those vows are pointing to a truth that we find here in this passage in verse 11. The Spirit convicts us that the world and its ruler, the devil, have been judged. That the things of this world, at least to the extent that they are ruled by Satan. So I'm not saying, you know, we're not one of these groups that says, oh, all the world is evil and everything about the world is evil and we're spiritual people and whatever. That's not what we're saying, okay? There are many good things that God gives us that are part of this physical world. As we've said many times, we are going to live in eternity in a physical world, okay? That's not the distinction we're making. But what we are saying is there are many things about this world that are corrupted, There are many ideals and values and things that this world seeks after that are unworthy of the Christian life and, in fact, have been judged by God as evil. So the Bible tells us that love for the world is enmity with God. The cross, in fact, and the resurrection are the definitive acts of victory over Satan. They are the definitive judgment and defeat of sin and Satan. And so this is how the Spirit convicts the world. All these things together. But another way to think of it is it's not just how he convicts the world, it's how he converts the world. This is how the Spirit converts the world. This is what it looks like for people to be made aware of their problem and Christ's solution and and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. He convicts our hearts and minds that we must acknowledge sin Believe on Jesus who is righteous and reject the futility of the world and its ruler, the devil. Right? That's what salvation looks like. And where is that coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit convincing and convicting our hearts or the hearts of the lost on what they should do. That is the ministry of the Spirit. That's what he has come to do. But he doesn't just work among the lost. He doesn't just work among those who are not followers of Jesus yet. He works among the saved as well. Well, what does he do for us? What does he do for those who have already trusted in Jesus Christ, who are already convicted of those things and have turned to Jesus Christ for salvation? What's it say in verse 12? Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. All right? So another ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit convicts the world, but the Spirit guides the followers of Christ into all truth. So the Spirit's work of convicting or convincing, it doesn't just stop with those who are outside of Christ, but now the Spirit guides those who are in Christ into all truth. And again, we might say, well, what does all truth mean? Well, all truth means all truth. It means the full counsel of God that Paul refers to in Acts 20. It refers to the all that I have commanded you that Jesus talks about in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that we see in Jude. Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to reveal all truth in every single aspect of every single thing out in the world, you know, science, and he's not going to show us the future in every single sense and whatever. Okay, it doesn't mean that that's not the all truth that he's talking about, but he's talking about the all truth that concerns the things of Christ and of the gospel. Now, again, Jesus is talking specifically to the apostles. And so he's talking about how the spirit is going to reveal to the apostles 
how all of the events of Jesus' life and ministry and teaching are to be rightly understood. So again, imagine the scenario. Sometimes we don't think this far back, but Jesus has died, has been resurrected. Now he's getting ready to ascend. We don't have a New Testament yet, right? We don't have the gospels. We don't have the letters of uh, the epistles and things like that. Uh, all we have is the disciples. And Jesus has been teaching and they remember these things, but they don't know how to interpret all of these. They don't know how to bring all the pieces together yet. And what does Jesus promise? He says, don't worry, the spirit is going to come and reveal these things to you. It's going to show you how the things that I said and the things that I did, what the broader meaning of those things are. And guess what? The disciples write those things down. And that's how we got our New Testament, right? The Holy Spirit inspires the writers of the New Testament and they write these gospels, they write these letters, they explain the application of uh, the acts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, how they relate to the Old Testament, how they're being fulfilled in Jesus and what that means for us now. Okay? And so he's certainly talking about the immediate ministry that the Holy Spirit is going to perform to these disciples, to the apostles in the, in the early church. But I think by extension, that spirit does this work in our lives too. The spirit still is guiding us in all truth. The Spirit progressively, as we engage with God's Word in the community of God's people, He guides us in all truth. And so we do that now, right? As we study God's Word, I believe that there are things that the Spirit has to speak to our hearts. That there are lots of truths that we come to in the Bible and we just go, man, I don't know about that. Like, it's hard for me to accept that just off the top of, the, you know, the way I feel and the way I've thought in the past, I, it's hard for me to accept that. But you know what happens? As we continue to be faithful, as we continue to study, as we continue to look at his word, as we continue to prayerfully um, engage with these things and, and, and be a part of the community of believers, what does he do? Man, we start to believe these things because it's the spirit convincing us of all truth. But notice something here. As the spirit convinces us of that truth, what does it say about that truth? There's probably nowhere that this could be more blatantly stated than in these passages, but it is this truth, that the Spirit guides us in Jesus' truth. The Spirit does not come and teach his own truth. But verse 13 says, For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. I think that passage can save us a whole lot of difficulty when we are dis when we are struggling to discern where the spirit is leading and, and and how we understand things. Because here's the reality: the spirit is always leading, always convincing, always convicting, in keeping with the teaching of Jesus in the Word of God. The spirit is never going to contradict Jesus ever. If you feel as though the Spirit is leading you to do something that goes against the teaching of Jesus, it isn't the Spirit. Or maybe I should say it this way. It isn't the Holy Spirit. It may be some Spirit, okay? It's probably just you, though. It's probably just your own sinful heart wanting your own sinful things. And so you convinced yourself that, oh, this is what I should do because the Spirit has told me. And the reality is, if whatever you want goes against what Christ has told us, 
then it's not the spirit because the spirit always says what Jesus says. So I believe Hebrews 1.1, if you go to Hebrews 1.1, basically teaches us that Jesus is the final revelation of God. That we're not going to know any more about God than we know in Jesus Christ. All right? The ministry of the Spirit is not here. This era that we live in, this church age where Jesus has ascended, but the Spirit has descended, is the Spirit is never going to reveal things that we've never heard of before. That's not what he does now. The Spirit comes and convinces our hearts of the truths that Jesus has already displayed to us. That's what the Spirit does. He convinces us of the things that Jesus has already said and taught. So again, that means the Spirit is never in conflict with the Word of God and with the teaching of Jesus. Never. Now here's this interesting thing, man. You see a strange alliance of people in this world who will at times try to pit the Holy Spirit against Jesus in the scriptures. All right? It is a bizarre alliance. You ready for this? Because one of the groups that oftentimes will pit the Holy Spirit against Jesus in the word is one, certain cultic groups, let's say the Mormons. Okay? So the Mormon church would come in and say, oh, well, the Spirit has now revealed more stuff to us, more books and more revelation. Uh, the New Testament, that was only one step in the process, but now we got this even better revelation. So that's one group that will say the Spirit has done new things that go against the teaching of Jesus in his word, all right? But you know who else will do that? <clears throat> Theological liberals. Theological liberals will say, well, you know what? The Spirit, the way it is moving in this era means we have to live in a different way. We can't trust what the Bible said 2,000 years ago. That's old. That's outdated. The Spirit is moving in new ways now. And we have to think in new ways, right? And so the cults are in league accidentally with the liberals in the church. But then here's the crazy thing too. Sometimes even conservative, charismatic believers believe the same thing. And so they start saying, hey, the Spirit has given me this new revelation, right? I have this new thing that nobody's ever heard of before. You know, I'm going to tell you about how we can go do something crazy, like we can go lay on people's graves and suck up their energy or their talents or these things like that. Well, where does Jesus tell us about that? He doesn't. It's not in there. But you know what? The Spirit has revealed something new to us, and we can do that now. And so all I would say is it's this strange bedfellows, right, of cults, liberal Christians and conservative charismatics. That's a weird group of people. And yet they are all in certain contexts doing the same thing, implying or blatantly declaring that to focus too heavily on Jesus and his word, that's an affront to the spirit. You shouldn't focus too much on Jesus and the word because that is doing a disservice to the way the spirit is working. But here's the deal, guys. Again, in this passage, the Spirit doesn't have his own agenda. He never does. His agenda is the Son's agenda every single time. And again, that makes sense in light of this last aspect that we're going to look at of the ministry of the Spirit, because here's what he says right after this in verse 14. What's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? What is the main job that he is here to do? He's here to convict the world. He's here to guide believers in all truth. But what is the main thing he is doing? Verse 14, 
He will glorify me, Jesus says. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's the deal. We have mentioned this many times before. The Spirit is sometimes called the shy person of the Trinity. The Spirit is always focusing attention on the Father and the Son, not on himself. J.I. Packer, again, who I mentioned earlier, says it uh, brilliantly. He says, the Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. The Spirit doesn't do that. But always the Spirit is saying, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life. Get to know him. Taste his gift of joy and peace. That's what the Spirit always does. The Spirit is always pointing us to the Son. And so, yes, all three of the persons of the Trinity, we know, are fully God. Truly God. And yet within that divine relationship, the Son makes known the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son. That's what happens, as we see in the Scriptures. So let me close with some specific applications that we could talk about. Something that I think is encouraging from this very straightforward passage about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One, it is this, what we just said. Don't be confused or led astray when someone pits the Spirit against Jesus and his word. I don't know who it is in your head that is saying those things, but it isn't Jesus, okay? If you feel as if the Spirit is leading you to go against God's word, it isn't the Spirit. And if someone out there in the world is saying, well, the Spirit has told me that you need to do this thing or act this way or be this kind of person that goes against the word of God and the teaching of Jesus, then they are wrong. And they are trying to lead you in a false direction. So don't listen to them. It's very easy. You don't even have to think about it. Okay, if you look to the word and it says this and you look to this person's uh, revelation and it says the opposite, it's always the word that's right. So that's the first thing. But second, and I think this is something that I would encourage us all to do, particularly in the time that we live in, particularly in, in the relationships that we have. Let's pray in accordance with the work that we know the Spirit does. Okay? So, man, the Bible tells us to come to God with all of our prayers, right? You can go to God with any kind of prayer. You can talk about any kind of issue. And I'm sure, I believe that God is a father. He wants to hear his children. He, he encourages us to come to him with all of our cares. Okay? But also, we know that the Holy Spirit is in the business of doing certain kinds of things. That's why he's here. One of those things that we've just read about is convicting the world of its sin, of the righteousness of Christ, and of judgment. So you know what? We should ask the Spirit to do that and have confidence that he will because he's already told us that's the kind of thing that he does all the time. So if you have a friend who is lost as a goose, right? I mean, just has no idea about any of these things. Okay, I encourage you to witness to that person, to share the gospel with them, to love them, to serve them, to, to do all those things. 
But what I would first encourage you to do is pray that the Spirit would convince and convict. So you've got that friend who is just, and we all do, right? Some of us have those same friends who have walked away from Christ, who are abjectly against Christ and the church and everything else. Or maybe you've just got a friend who's never come to Christ in the first place and is antagonistic to all of these things. And you say, man, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to start a conversation. I don't know how to convince. I don't know how to convict. I don't know how to make them believe. And the answer is you can't, but the Holy Spirit can. So do that. Go to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, you have said your job in this world. Jesus has said your job in this world is to convict the world. God asks that you would convict my friend, that you would convict him of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Ask the Holy Spirit to do that. And moreover, not just for those outside the church, but pray that the Spirit would do the things that he has said he would do for the church, which are what? To guide us in all truth. If you come to the word and you're like, oh man, I just don't know what to do with this. I don't know how this all matches up. I don't, it says this one thing over here and it says this other thing over here. I don't know how to bring all this stuff together. It's a really big book. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. There's a lot of words in it. How do I understand all of this stuff and bring it all together and make sense of it as a cohesive revelation of one God? And the answer is ask a spirit to do that. Say, spirit, will you guide me in all truth? Will you guide me as I study your word? Will you make this clear to me? Will you put people and resources in my in, in, in the right places so that I can understand these things? Will you give me a peace about them as I study, as I learn, as I read, as you minister to me? And more than anything, not just that he would reveal to us or guide us in all truth, but most importantly, say, Holy Spirit, Will you glorify your son in my sight? Will you show me Jesus over and over again? Will you let me see how good and gracious and glorious Jesus is? Whether I'm reading or praying or serving or worshiping or working or spending time with my family, God, would you, Holy Spirit, would you give me a fresh vision of the glory of Christ? Would you point my attention to him? Would you show me how awesome and gracious he is? And the spirit will do that. You know why? Because that's the spirit's job. That's what he has come to earth to do. And so you know what? If you're in one of those dark places in, in your life, right? And you're just sort of going, man, I'm depressed and I'm anxious and I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go and I don't know where to look. And I treat, keep on trying to pick myself up by my bootstraps and get myself out of it. And I just can't get, I just can't make it happen. Like I can't get it all together. Go to the spirit and say, spirit, will you do what you said you would do? Will you guide me in all truth? Will you show me the glory of Christ? And I believe as we pray according to the word of God, as we ask God to do the things that God has already promised to do, we will have him answer our prayers. And that Christ will be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to help us to remember to do that. Because I can tell you, confessionally, this is not what I do. 
So many times I go, man, I'm, I'm just going to be hopeless about this person who is lost. I'm going to be hopeless about my own ignorance. I'm going to be hopeless about my own situation. And, you know, maybe it'll just work itself out. We'll just see what happens. And the answer is that the word tells us, no, go to the spirit. Ask the spirit. The spirit is waiting to help. Go to the Lord in prayer about these things and ask God to do what he's always promised to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we confess that, that when we come to the, to the topic of, of your Holy Spirit, when we come to talk about, um, the way the Holy Spirit works, God, we get so distracted on so many different issues when, um, the primary, when the obvious, when the, when the blatantly declared, uh, work and ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is made clear to us here in your word. Um, God, that your Spirit is working uh, in us and around us, God, that your spirit is working uh, in and around um, those people who he is converting and drawing to Jesus Christ. Um, he is working in and amongst his church and and guiding us in all truth and showing us the goodness and glory of Christ. God, that we ask that, that you would help us to focus our prayers in that direction. God, that we would acknowledge and see how the spirit is working. Um, God, that we would, God, submit our lives to any way that we could be a means by which this, the Spirit worked, and yet at the same time that we would trust in Him to do the work that is at hand. Father, I, I'm thankful for all those many times where, um, God, you have moved in such a way that it was obvious to me um, that beyond any ability I had or beyond any amount of work that I had done or beyond any amount of energy that I had put into something, God, that your spirit was moving ahead of me and doing the work already. And God, we 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 all experience that. We all see it at times in our lives. And we ask that you would help us to remember that, to pray in accordance with that. Um, and to to watch as the Spirit does what the Spirit does. We thank you, God, for your many blessings. Uh, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit into the world. Um, we bless your name. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. Let me pray as far as the heavens lie, darkness deepens, Lord, with me another day, with other nails, then comes me. The 
Amen. Hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend. Um, be careful tomorrow, uh, whatever you're doing. And um, we'll see you here next week as we uh, celebrate Trinity Sunday, as we talk about the ministry of the Son, uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ to us. Um, here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.
Well, if we store a button, 